So if you had a week to live, how would you spend your time? What would you do? If you had one week to live, how would you spend your time? And what would you do? It's a philosophical question. It's a question that is meant um, to help us think about what's the most important things in our lives. What are our values? What are our priorities? And the best answer to that question is that if I had a week to live, I would do exactly what I'm doing now. In other words, what we would be doing would be spending time right now on the things that are our highest priorities, the things that are most valuable to us, the things that are most important. And many of us would say, of course, that, well, you know, I would, I would spend more time with my family and my kids and my friends, or I might travel or I might do this. When asked, many people never say, I wish I would have spent more time at work. I mean, work is necessary, but work isn't the most important thing that we do in life. And few of us would say, if I had one more week to live, I'd spend more time at work. It was kind of the way I felt when, um, when Greg and, and the worship team suggested that for these last five weeks before I retire from full-time ministry, that you know, I would design some sermons of the things that were the most important things I wanted to talk about. If I had four more weeks to say things to people about life and faith, what would I, what would I say? And the first thing I did was throw up on my shoes. Because <laughs> it sounded a little bit too much uh, like it was about me. But most importantly, it's really about God. What are... What are the four most important things I think that God would want us to know and think about? And these should have been the things that, that I tried to emphasize and talk about for 43 years in ministry. Narrowing it down to only four is almost impossible. But I chose these things. I'm going to spend some time today talking about discipleship. I, I think God cares a great deal about our discipleship, about being faithful followers of Jesus Christ. You see, being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ is the only way that anyone understands about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And that's our responsibility, our privilege, and our calling. I want to say something about the church. The church is the body of Christ. It's made up of faithful followers of Jesus it's created by God for a unique purpose. And I believe what Bill Hybels has often said, and that is that the local church is the hope of the world. I want to say something about God, which sounds rather obvious. But I found it in 43 years of ministry, I have a lot more questions about God right now than I have answers. God is bigger than we think. In fact, J.B. Phillips once wrote a long time ago, your God is too small. And then I want to say something about the journey. 
We're told in Scripture that God knew all of us from the foundations of the world. He knew all of us by name from the foundation before the world was ever created. He knew who you were. And then we were born, and he launched us on a journey. I know, and, and, and those of us in this room, some of us um, are relatively young in that journey. We may be young when it comes to how, how long we've been following Jesus, or we may be young chronologically, and others of us have been uh, with Jesus maybe our whole lives and are older. God is never done with us on the journey. He's always shaping us and forming us. So today I want to say a few things about discipleship. Now, when I was a freshman at Hope, I, w- I was absolutely clueless about how the whole academic thing worked. I was really uh, clued in on how the football thing worked. I didn't know much about how the whole academic thing worked in college. I had the advantage of being on campus for a couple of weeks before school started practicing football, and so I got the campus layout thing down. I mean, I knew how to go from uh, my dormitory to the cafeteria because that's the first thing that football players learn. I learned how to negotiate and navigate the the physical nature of the campus. But when I got that uh, college course curriculum catalog, you know, back in the old days, you know, there were not computers. It was a thick book. And it showed you all the classes that were offered at Hope College and kind of gave you an idea of how you should take them in sequence with one another. And uh, I, I was totally confused. But um, the good news is is that they provided us with an academic counselor who was supposed to help us make these choices. And my academic counselor was great. He said, hey, look, you know, you're a first semester freshman. There's a lot of requirements that you have to take at a place like Hope to even be able to graduate. Everybody has to take them. Your first semester, you probably ought to focus on some of those required classes. Perfect. And he also said, hey, look, you ought to try to balance your schedule Um, Some with stuff that requires a lot of reading and some paper writing, and others that don't require as much of that. You know, maybe mix world literature and and political science with math and a science class because there's just enough difference in there. Um, And and that would balance out your, your workload. I was not familiar with the studying part, but that was required too. So one of the things that that he said I had to do was we had a religion requirement. Uh, I think four courses we had to take over the course of the four years, one every year in religion. And we had to take, we were required to take an Old Testament survey class, an overview of the whole Old Testament, an overview of the New Testament. And when he mentioned that to me, it really didn't ring my chimes that loudly. I mean, I had not had the greatest um, local church experience when I was growing up. I was bored to tears most of the time which was probably more about me than what was going on in the life of our church. And the last thing I wanted to do was to take an Old Testament class. I mean, I couldn't think of anything more dry or more irrelevant than the Old Testament. But I signed up. I had to take it, so I went. I went the first day to class. I I was, you know, I got there a little bit early so I could get my favorite seat in the back of the room. And, um... And and I got all settled, and the professor came in, half jogging, half running. And not because he was late. I discovered later that that's just the way this guy moved all the time. And he successfully read the roster of people who were supposed to be there. I was glad to hear my name called. I hadn't showed up in the wrong class at the wrong time in the wrong building that time. 
And um, then he started to talk about the syllabus of the Old Testament. And he was so energetic and so alive and so passionate about what he was talking about. I was this is the Old Testament? This is the Old Testament. This guy is so energized by the Old Testament. And that was my introduction to Bill Hilligans. I discovered that he was also the college chaplain, that he taught one course each semester of every year, and he always taught Old Testament. And if you were in the know, and I wasn't, but if you were in the know, you tried to get into his Old Testament survey class because it was the best Old Testament survey class on campus. It was mostly filled with sophomores. Somehow I lucked out and got into it as a freshman unknowingly. But every single day when Bill taught us about the Old Testament, it came alive in a new way that I'd never experienced before. He said things that I had never heard. He taught us things I had never learned. I attended um, student church, which at that time was at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And I will confess, because we are in church, I'll be completely honest, I didn't go every Sunday. But I did go more often than not simply to listen to Bill's sermons. They were sermons, it was church as if I had never experienced it before. It was really quite phenomenal. Now, he was referred to as Wild Bill on campus. He was energetic. He was involved in everything. He seemed to be kind of like around everywhere. He was always kind of pushing the envelope, and he was an out-of-the-box creative thinker. This was the beginning for me of a long relationship and significant relationship in my life. Bill became a confidant, a go-to counselor for me. He nurtured me as a student and as a man. He probably is single-handedly responsible for our marriage because there was a time where Becky really didn't want, I know it's surprising, didn't want anything to do with me. But Bill intervened and officiated at our wedding. And when I wrestled with the decision about whether or not I should leave teaching and go into ministry, he and his wife were the first two people that we went to to ask about it. And he encouraged me to do so. And, and then at the end of that conversation, he said, hey, look, if you go to seminary, you can be my assistant chaplain. While you're still in seminary, just start right away. You can be the assistant chaplain. I was so excited. I now had two part-time jobs at Hope. I was going to be an assistant football coach and an assistant chaplain. And they both paid the same salary. Zero. The good news was they doubled my salary every single year I served in that capacity. Actually, after I graduated from seminary, Bill went to bat for me with the president to hire me as an assistant chaplain, and I actually got a paycheck. But I became a Bill Hilligan's disciple. I hung on every word that he said. I paid attention to the way he ordered his life. I admired his pastoral presence. I embraced his unconventional methodologies. And there were times when I prayed, Lord, if I have to be a pastor, let me be half the pastor that Bill Hilligan's is. I mean, it's not unusual for people to find mentors, to be a disciple of someone. There are thousands of business people that are disciples of Jack Welch. There are thousands of people who are chefs or cooks who admire Mario Batali. 
There are lots of NFL coaches who started out coaching with and for Bill Belichick, the head coach of the New England Patriots. And there are lots of young women who are dancers and maybe even men. I shouldn't be so sexist in my old age. Men and women who admire the work of Misty Copeland. We find people and we order our life around them and we want to be like them. Jesus collected disciples and he collected them quite easily in some ways. He collected them, we're told, with two words, follow me, which was a request that meant a lot more than trail along behind me. In the first century, when a rabbi said, follow me, and you became one of his disciples, you committed your life to that teacher. They decided, those followers, those disciples, they wanted to be just like the rabbi. They wanted to learn like the rabbi. They wanted to teach like the rabbi. They wanted to dress like the rabbi. They wanted to you know, go where the rabbi went, do what the rabbi did. They wanted to see the way, world the way the rabbi saw it. They wanted to be just like the rabbi. In fact, a couple of years ago, those of you who attend here regularly might remember that we had a whole series on discipleship and we talked about the dust of the rabbi. This is the way in the first century they talked about what it meant to be a disciple of a rabbi. You wanted to follow so closely behind that rabbi that as their shoes kicked up the dust of the earth, that dust fell on your robe and your sandals. That's how closely you followed and wanted to model your life after the rabbi. That's what John is alluding to in the first chapter of his gospel when he says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Son has made God known. Jesus, we say, is the incarnation. He is God in human form. And many churches, you've heard this right, have adopted this idea that we want to know Christ and we want to make him known. We want to be intimate with Jesus. We want to follow him so closely that we have the dust of the rabbi on our shoes, our feet, and our robes. And then we want to not only know that rabbi for ourselves, but we want to make him known. Now, I believe that a lot of us want to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. I can only speak for myself. I want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. But I have to ask myself this question. Do I want to follow Jesus the way that the disciples chose to follow Jesus? I mean, I'm okay with following Jesus as long as it's comfortable and not too demanding for me. When Jesus said, follow me, he was asking us to sacrifice and leave some things behind. And we hear those words, follow me, and we can even say those words, follow me, and we can say that's what I want to do is to follow him. But in reality, if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, what we often do is we go somewhere and we pray that God will follow us. I've taken this job, Lord, please bless me. We've bought this house, Lord, please bless us. We've made this decision. God, bless this decision that we've made. 
we kind of turn things around and get it upside down. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans about discipleship, he writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is suggesting that discipleship is not about careful, tiny, incremental changes or half-hearted efforts. It's about a radical transformation. It's about being so different from the culture of which we are a part that we are countercultural. And people don't notice us because we fit in, but because we don't fit in. In his book, All In, Mark Batterson writes about his experience in speaking to thousands of Christians at, at Christian conferences and at churches. And I need you to hear this. He's speaking at conferences that are rooms filled with Christians and believers and churches that are filled with Christians. It's not evangelistic events. He says that he invites people to follow Jesus in those events, in those events of rooms filled with Christians. Follow Jesus, he says. And about 50% respond. He writes, what's astounding about that percentage is the simple fact that 100% of them thought they were already following Jesus. But they weren't. They had inverted the gospel. They had bought into what Jesus said, but they haven't sold out to what Jesus said. They're half in and half out. A reminder of what Jesus said about being a disciple. We read this earlier from Matthew. Luke says exactly the same thing. Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. In that same book, Batterson quotes Fox's Book of Martyrs that kind of highlights the life of the disciples after they chose to follow Jesus. Do you know what happened to all these disciples? James, the disciple of Jesus, was killed with a sword because he was a Christian. Luke was hung by the neck from an olive tree because he was a Christian. Doubting Thomas was killed with a spear after he had been tortured with red-hot plates and burned alive eventually in India because he was a disciple of Jesus. Philip was tortured and crucified because he converted a political leader to Christianity. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. I mean, Fox's Book of Martyrs is not the most enjoyable, exciting, encouraging reading. 
but it's the truth of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. It puts discipleship in perspective. Now, my guess is that no one in this room, when they got up this morning and decided to go to worship, was worried about what secretive route they could take so that you wouldn't be killed on the way here because you're a Christian. None of us are worrying right now about what might happen to us if we leave here because this is a church and we're Christians and someone might kill us because of our faith. We live in a whole different world. We don't have to worry about that. But the question is still before us. What are we willing to die for in our lifestyle so that others might be able to live? Are we willing to die to a particular image that we're trying to maintain to befriend people who others consider to be outcasts? Are we willing to love people in a way that calls our allegiance to Christianity into question by some in the Christian community? Oh, well, you know, they can't be a real Christian because they do that. I mean, I hear that once in a while. You know, I mean, these people, I mean, you can't be real Christians. I mean, you go to Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church. We love to cast disparaging comments on other people about their discipleship and their faith and their allegiances. I mean, one of the things that I learned from Bill Hilligans was that occasionally you're going to have to do things that aren't that popular with people. And some of the people with whom it's not popular might mean faculty members on campus. Some might be key administrators. And occasionally it might even be the college president. Our offices were right next to each other and there was no soundproofing. And there was occasions where Bill would be in there with the college president arguing about something vehemently so that the window shook and I just shuddered and go, Lord, don't let me be the chaplain. The unconditional love that Jesus offers us is a discipleship challenge. It means that we're to follow him by loving people that others don't love or who might be very different than we are. People who may have a different sexual orientation, a different lifestyle that they're choosing, different political allegiances. Discipleship with Jesus should always stretch us out of our comfort zone. Seminary professor and author Steve Brown has served on many boards in his ministry. He served on boards of Christian magazines, boards of Christian evangelistic ministries, boards of Christian sports ministries. And he always kind of, you know, served on those boards with a sense of pride and it really helped his image and he looked great as a leader in the Christian community because he was a board member of these things. And then he began to think about his ministry and he began to wrestle with what it meant to be a disciple and a disciple and a leader in the Christian community and he resigned from all those boards. No more Christian magazine, no more Christian evangelistic ministry, no more Christian sports ministry. What do you want me to do next, Lord? He got a call from someone that he knew who asked him to be on the board of a ministry that would minister to gays and lesbians. 
most of the staff in that ministry and a huge majority of the board members were homosexuals. And when he was asked to serve on that board, he was concerned about how it might impact his image. He was worried that people might think that he was gay. I don't want anybody to think that I'm gay because I'm on that board. And as he prayed, he heard God say to him, when he asked that question, so? So what if that's what people think? I mean, you might not be gay, but you are sinful. You are dirty. You are kind of screwed up. And if they call you gay because you serve on that board, be glad. Because when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, you're really able to rejoice. That's the difference between buying in and being sold out. I mean, discipleship requires wholehearted commitment. That's what Fox's Book of Martyr points out. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote about when he wrote to the church in Philippi about how he had brought, brought up. If anybody had any reason to brag about being you know, a religious uh, leader in the, in the world, it was Paul. I mean, he was raised in an upper middle class Jewish home. He had the best education that money could provide. He was a leader in the Jewish, Jewish, communi Jewish community at a very young age. He was the leading persecutor of this upstart religion that had no part of being part of the world called Christianity. People feared him. And then he met Jesus one day. And he left all of that behind. And he said to the church at Philippi, I consider all that stuff to be garbage compared to the unsurpassing worth of simply knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And when he wrote to the church at Philippi, he said, For me, to live is Christ. And to die... And I think he meant to die in any way, shape, or form. To die to some stuff is really gain. So I had a conversation recently with a young couple from our church who've made some um, you know, pretty radical decisions about what it means to be a, a disciple. And, um, and I said, well, can I share your story of worship this Sunday? And they said, sure, we won't be there. That'll be great. They didn't really say that. I just made that part up. So, um, so I caught wind of the fact that, that Dan and Carrie Rudman were going to sell their house and move. And so a few weeks ago, I said to Dan, I said, so I hear you're moving. And he says, yeah, it's all your fault. I mean, I get blamed for everything. I might as well take that one too. Why not, right? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, several months back, you know, you were preaching this sermon and you used Pope Francis as an illustration and you said that everybody loved him and respected him, even if they didn't agree with everything, uh, because he, he just was simple. He didn't like all the trappings of being Pope. He wasn't going to use the Pope mobile. He wasn't going to live in the Pope's residence. He was just going to be a common person. That's the way you should live. It's just about being humble and simple and living your life that way. 
And, and so when we got in the car after church that day, I said to Carrie and our kids, we're going to sell our house and move. Well, you can imagine Carrie's response. It, it ended up in an argument in the car. Carrie and Dan are arguing about selling their house and moving, and the kids in the back seat are crying because all they heard are is, we're going to sell our house and move. <laughs> Over the course of time, they talked about that very idea even more and more, and Carrie and Dan decided together that they were going to sell their big house and move into something smaller. That chasing this idea of, of more and bigger and better wasn't what God had called them to do. And they also had way too much stuff. I mean, we've all got way too much stuff. And they decided to get rid of some of their stuff. And I won't go into all the details of getting rid of stuff, but they decided get, they're, they're building a, a smaller house to move into. They're going to simplify their lifestyle. They resigned from some club memberships because it just didn't make sense to put their money into that kind of stuff. And who knows where it may lead them next. Now, we're not going to have to have a benefit to help them live. They're going to be fine. They're not going to be in the benevolent roles at church. But, but the point is that they, they decided that they had to die to something so that in some way, shape, or form, they could really live. It's about incremental change and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's about saying that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's deciding that in the end, in the end, when we do die to ourselves and live for Christ, it's when we really come to life. It's when you really find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in your life. It's what discipleship is all about. Will you pray with me, please? God in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word, which, which challenges us and stretches us out of our comfort zone and forces us to think about things that we don't want to think about, we don't even like thinking about, but it's what it means to be a follower of yours. Most importantly, we thank you for your love. More than anything else, as we are faithful followers of Jesus in discipleship, it's about your love. So help us to love you more, and because we love you, to love others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.